0: Over Easter week, starting last Sunday tonight, and then again on Easter day on Sunday, we're reading together through Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus. Mark's gospel was the very first eyewitness account of Jesus' life to be written. Matthew, Luke, and John followed. Mark was written 30 years after Jesus' death. The author, a man called John Mark, a close friend and companion of the Apostle Peter, Peter who was the leader in the early church. Peter was one of Jesus' close group of followers called Disciples who lived, worked, and travelled with Jesus for three years. Peter was there in Jerusalem that first Easter week. He saw firsthand what happened. He himself was involved in what happened. He told Mark, who wrote it down, so that we can have an eyewitness testimony, so we can know for certain what happened. Mark's description in common with Matthew, Luke and John of the death and resurrection of Jesus dominates their narratives. The death of Jesus and his resurrection, the events of Easter are the most important events in Jesus' life. Christianity, the Christian message at its heart, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Understanding what happened, the facts and their meaning, their significance could not be more important. Mark does both for us. He explains the facts and he explains their significance. And all the way through his narrative, Mark draws us in as readers, draws us in and invites us to consider where we stand in relation to the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. In a moment, we'll pick up and hear read Mark's record from the point that Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. His arrest was in the very early hours of Friday morning, the first Good Friday, perhaps one or two o'clock in the morning, the dead of night. The evening before, the Thursday evening, Jesus had spent with his disciples at a house in the city celebrating the Passover meal. The group had come up to Jerusalem a few days earlier, along with thousands of others. It was the time of the Passover in Jerusalem, part of the week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, the biggest event in the Jewish religious calendar. Jerusalem was packed with pilgrims. The Passover meal on a Thursday night remembered how God's wrath, the angel of death, had passed over his people in history what had saved God's people then was the blood of a sacrificed lamb smeared on their doorposts, a sign, blood shed, that they were God's people. And so the angel of death passed over them. And last night on that Thursday night, in the intimate atmosphere of this Passover meal with his closest friends, His disciples. Jesus took bread and wine, symbols that traditionally recalled the events of that first Passover. And he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said something astonishing. Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. In the intimacy of that meal with his disciples, giving them bread and wine, symbolic of his body that would be broken to death, and the shedding of his blood so that God's wrath would pass over all people, all people who look to him for their salvation. Jesus is the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed for our sin. Following the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples had walked maybe 30 minutes or so down the Kidron Valley in the middle of the night to the Garden of Gethsemane, a familiar place for them. Maybe the final hour of Thursday through midnight into the first hour of Friday in the Garden. Gethsemane means an olive grove or an olive press. Jesus goes to the darkest part of the garden in the darkest part of the night and experiences the horror and the agony of what he would face on the cross. Mark records his agony. Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. My soul is sorrowful even to death. In Luke's account, in an agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And so the Son of God prayed to God the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not I will, but what you will. My dear Father, my loving Father, Is there any way that you can spare me from this hour? What was the cup that caused Jesus such agony? The cup is the wrath of God. The full extent of that cup Jesus will bear on the cross. The sum, the totality of the eternal wrath of God for the millions millions of people who have believed in him and will believe in him down through the centuries of history. Jesus will be crushed under the weight of God's wrath, and the thought of it, the contemplation of it, crushed him in Gethsemane such that he sweated blood. Jesus prays and God answers that he must go to the cross. God strengthens his son. And the last battle is won. Surely the last battle was the cross, where sin and death and the devil's dominion were defeated. Yes, but a mighty spiritual battle in history was fought in the middle of the night, the first hour of Good Friday, a battle that was fierce, a battle that had it not been won, there would be no salvation and no hope for humanity. The magnificent Son of God, who had stilled storms, healed the sick, taught like no one had ever taught, fed thousands out of nothing, faced his opponents with steel and steadiness, so shocked at the prospect of the cross that he was undone, distraught, sweating blood in his agony. And yet God strengthened him. God sent his angel and the Son of God stood up and said, it is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. Our reaction? For me, it was in the garden that he prayed not my will but thine. No tears for his own griefs, but sweat drops of blood for mine. How marvellous, how wonderful my song shall ever be. How marvellous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love for me. Jesus went to the cross so you can sing that song with assurance in your heart. Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in the early hours of Friday morning, perhaps one o'clock in the morning or thereabouts. An intense spiritual battle had been fought and won by Jesus in Gethsemane. And now there is resolute, determined conviction as Jesus goes purposefully to his death in obedience to his Father's will. It is a dramatic scene that Mark records. He writes immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. Judas is a disciple who had betrayed him. And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They came for Jesus with force. The only resistance comes from one of those who stood by and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Who this is, we do not know. We're not told. But from Jesus, there is no resistance. Not that he is resigned to his fate, rather, that he is resigned purposefully to go to his death in obedience to his Father's will. His words but let the scriptures be fulfilled. A reminder that everything that is happening is in fulfillment of all that had been promised beforehand. Prophecies like Isaiah that we read at the start of the service, fulfilled in these events. And that tells us something very important. The cross was God's plan The cross is God's purpose. That Jesus dies is God's intent. That is why Jesus came to earth to rescue humanity from their sin and God's wrath. The Christian message and the Christian faith were not made up to fit around these events. These events, rather, are the sovereign outworking of the will and purposes of God to rescue humanity. Verse 50 records, they all left him and fled. Mark is referring to Jesus' disciples, his friends. Earlier that evening, when the group walked to the Garden of Gethsemane after the Passover meal, Jesus had said to them, you will all fall away. Only one, Peter had protested, "Even though they all fall away, I will not." Two verses in Mark's narrative are odd to include. Who was the young man who followed Jesus and then fled naked when he was seized? Maybe Peter? Maybe Mark himself. Whoever it was, it is the kind of detail that speaks of eyewitness testimony. Jesus had two trials. The first was before the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. Barbara read the account of that first trial. It took place in the middle of the night, perhaps two or three in the morning. And that trial before the Sanhedrin establishes the fact that Jesus is innocent and yet condemned. It is a sham, breaking all the rules that govern such cases. In capital cases such as this, when the death penalty was sought, a verdict of guilty required a sitting sitting the following day. And there was no second sitting. Both sittings had to take place during the daylight hours. And here they are, meeting in the middle of the night. Witnesses were to be warned under oath against rumour and hearsay and here instead all sorts of witnesses are put forward to fabricate a case against Jesus. A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accused cursed God's name itself, which Jesus never does. It is a travesty of injustice and the condemnation of an innocent man In the words of Isaiah, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Only once in his trial did Jesus break his silence. In response to the high priest's direct question as to whether he is the Messiah, Jesus responds, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And according from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, Jesus is claiming to be God's eternal King who will rise from the dead and return in judgment. And that incensed Caiaphas, the high priest, who accuses Jesus of blasphemy. Mark's description of this sham trial ends with Jesus condemned as worthy of death, mocked and beaten. Surrounding Jesus, there are all sorts of characters in the drama. There are those who directly oppose Jesus, who betrayed him who insulted him, who lied about him, wanted him dead. There were the bystanders who sided with those who opposed Jesus, the mob who came to arrest him, the bystanders in the courtyard with Peter who accused him of being a follower of Jesus. And therein is a timeless pattern. People oppose Jesus. People oppose the followers of Jesus. And that opposition need not be physical. It is often intellectual. It can be simply an antagonistic, dismissive heart. It is a dangerous position, though, to take, to oppose the Son of God. And then there are the followers, the friends of Jesus, who desert him and retreat into the shadows where the danger is less. But Mark intends us to focus on one man, one man other than Jesus, and that is his disciple, Peter. The place we all need to find ourselves in the narrative at this point is where Peter was. For where Peter was, was the threshold of salvation. Just a few hours earlier on the walk to Gethsemane, Peter had been emphatic that he would never desert Jesus. Even though they will all desert you, Jesus, he had said, I will not. To which Jesus had said, truly, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times, Peter Said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Jesus had taken Peter along with James and John with him into the heart of Gethsemane while the other disciples waited at the edge. He had taken Peter and James and John for support that they might keep watch and pray for him. Three times in his anguish, praying, Jesus broke off to check on them. Three times, he found them asleep. Jesus triumphed in his battle in the garden. Peter, James, and John failed. Now, whether the young man who initially followed Jesus at his arrest was Peter or not, we don't know. What Mark does tell us is that Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, And to be fair to Peter, he was still there when all the other disciples had deserted Jesus. Peter was brave. Peter was a leader. He would be the leader in the early church. Peter would be the man that preached the sermon at Pentecost. But close and loyal as Peter was to Jesus, the Lord's prediction came true. Three times when asked if he knew Jesus or if he was one of his followers, Peter denied he knew him. The rooster crowed a second time. Mark writes, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Three times, Peter denied he knew Jesus. And that made Peter break down and weep and realize how much he needed the forgiveness that Jesus' death brings. And that recognition, that awareness, that emotional response Realizing Jesus needed to go to the cross for him was a decisive moment in Peter's life. Now, that is humble ground to stand on, but also oh necessary. The great Apostle Peter, the leader of the church, convicted of his sin humbled, broken, weeping before Jesus as a sinner in need of forgiveness, moved in his soul onto the threshold of salvation. The threshold of salvation, conviction of sin, realizing our sinfulness, undone by our sin, a conscious, contrite experience, of the need of forgiveness. And for the Christian after many, many years, not the threshold of salvation, but the threshold of transformation, conviction of sin, undone by our sin, a conscious, contrite experience of the need of Jesus and his saving death. To come to that point is to plead nothing for our salvation, but Jesus' death. Here's a great older hymn. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, And that you bid me come to you. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am. You will receive. Will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because your promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am of that free love, the breadth, length, depth, and height to prove, here for a time, then above. O Lamb of God, I come. Have you come to Jesus, the Lamb of God? Will you come? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus tonight. Jesus' first trial before the Sanhedrin was in the early hours of Friday morning, 2 to 3 a.m. After that, he was held in custody. And Mark writes, as soon as it was morning, probably around 6 a.m. first light, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. While it was probable that Roman authority was needed, To secure execution, there were political reasons in going to Pilate. The strong arm of Rome against Jesus, especially the shame and public disgrace of Roman crucifixion, would rule out any attempt from his followers to continue Jesus' mission after his death. The primary charge the Sanhedrin brought to Pilate's attention, justifying the death sentence was that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews. Like the trial before the Sanhedrin, it is clear Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, for he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered Jesus up. In Mark's account, the spotlight falls on Jesus and Barabbas and the custom at the Passover feast to release a prisoner to the crowd. Pilate was holding a prisoner called Barabbas. He is referred to as a rebel who had committed murder in the insurrection, riots against the Roman rule. Sensing their opportunity to have Jesus condemned, the religious leaders incite the crowd and urge Pilate to observe the custom of releasing a prisoner. Pilate offers them Jesus. Pilate is a hardened, brutal Roman governor. Even he sees the flagrant injustice of this. But the religious leaders incite the crowd to ask for Barabbas instead. The trial was in Herod's palace where Pilate resided during the Passover festival. Archaeological excavation has indicated a large stone pavement at the top of a flight of steps. Pilate would have sat in his judgment seat on the pavement with a crowd at the bottom of the steps. And the two prisoners, Barabbas on his left, Jesus on his right, standing side by side before Pilate and the crowd. Contrast the two men. Barabbas was guilty and justly condemned to die on a cross. Jesus was innocent and did not deserve to be condemned. Yet it is Barabbas who is set free and Jesus who goes to the cross. Jesus, innocent yet condemned, takes the place of Barabbas, guilty yet not condemned. It is a straight substitution. The one who deserves to be punished is led off, and the one who is innocent takes the punishment. And here again is a picture of the Christian gospel. Jesus takes the place of sinners. Jesus takes the punishment that sinners deserve. Earlier in his narrative, Mark draws us in to stand where Peter stood, convicted by sin, a conscious, contrite realization that Jesus needs to die for me. And now Mark draws us in to stand where Barabbas stood, standing next to Jesus before the judgment seat. We are guilty because we are sinful. We are deserving of punishment, the judgment of God. Jesus, who is innocent, without sin, deserving of no punishment, Takes our place and goes to the cross that we might go free. What emotions does that stir in us? For Christians, a clear understanding of what Jesus did, a thankfulness, a humility at the realisation of the cost of our salvation and a desire to give our all for Jesus in response to all that he has given us. If you're not yet a Christian, maybe your emotion is shock or joy that you could be free from condemnation, from punishment for sin, There is one danger, though, that we think we are not like Barabbas. Our sins are nothing like his. So surely God will look over our sins and accept us as we are. God cannot look over our sin and accept us as we are. Peter could say he was nothing like Barabbas. But Peter And you and me and all who will be saved need to accept that Jesus takes our place and takes the punishment for sin that we deserve. Jesus is crucified at the third hour, that is nine o'clock in the morning. Events have moved rapidly. The evening before, he celebrated the Passover and said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for many. And now his body is being broken and his blood is being poured out. Verses 33 to 41 is Mark's description of the critical hours on the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, the sixth hour is midday, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three hours there is darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From midday till three in the afternoon, darkness not just at Calvary or in Jerusalem, but over the whole land. In the middle of the day, when the sun should have been at its brightest, darkness descended for three hours. This is a supernatural event, no solar eclipse. That would last only a few minutes, not three hours. This is a supernatural event. Remember, this is eyewitness testimony. It is what happened. What does the darkness mean? God's glory is symbolized by light. At the birth of Jesus, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them at the resurrection of Jesus, as we'll see on Sunday. The appearance of the angel of God at the empty tomb was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Brilliant, shining light at the birth and resurrection of Jesus, but at the death of Jesus, darkness, The darkness means God's wrath, his righteous judgment against human sin, directed at Jesus, his Son. Listen to these words from the prophecy of Joel. For the day of the Lord is near. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened. For the day of the Lord is great and awesome. Who can endure it? And from the prophecy of Amos, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? And on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Now these prophecies are all referring to the final day of the Lord when the risen and reigning Jesus returns in judgment at the end of the world. And on that day, God's judgment, his wrath, will be poured out on all humanity that has rejected salvation through his Son, an eternal hell. What is hell? Everlasting subjection to divine wrath in a place described by Jesus as outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping, and gnashing of teeth, eternal, unrelieved blackness. And that is the destiny of all humanity, unless they turn to Jesus. Jesus looks down from his cross and says, "'Will you turn?' To me, How can Jesus save us from eternal hell? How can one man save so many from eternal hell? Because that one man is the eternal Son of God who was made sin for us. Who took our place and bore the wrath of God. And from noon till three o'clock, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, hell came to Calvary as God unleashed the full extent of everlasting punishment on his Son. Isaiah wrote, It was the Lord's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. This was the cup of wrath that Jesus anticipated in the garden. This is what caused his soul such agony. This is what caused him to sweat blood. And now the reality is Jesus is crushed under the weight of God's wrath. Jesus bears on the cross the totality of the eternal wrath of God for the millions and millions of people who have believed in him, who will believe in him tonight, and who will believe in him in the future until he comes again. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of forsakenness, a cry of dereliction. As Jesus quotes the words of Psalm 22, and so is fulfilled the terrible cost of our salvation. The Son of God, forsaken by God the Father. Jesus, bearing hell, that we might share his heaven. All he asks of us, all he asks of us is to look to him for salvation, to stand with Peter, convicted of sin, to stand with Barabbas and watch him take our place. My God, why have you forsaken me? It is shocking that at that terrible moment, people mock Jesus. But it's at this moment that his father, who has poured out his wrath on his son, is restored in his loving relationship with his son because the terrible agony is over. The price has been paid. The wrath of God for the millions of people who will look to Jesus for their salvation is extinguished. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The other Gospels record what that cry is. Jesus cries, it is finished. Not a cry of dereliction or forsakenness, but a cry of victory. His agony is over. The price has been paid. Salvation has been wrought, achieved, won for all who look to him for their salvation. He breathes his last, commits his spirit to his Father with whom he has now at one and he dies. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. At that moment, the old covenant was abolished. The temple nullified. The priesthood voided. All sacrifices were pointless because the once and for all sacrifice had been made. Jesus' death opens up the gateway to God, God's glorious presence is available to all who turn to Jesus for salvation. The Christian does not pray, Abba, Father, is there any other way? The Christian prays, Abba, Father, thank you for Jesus dying for me. The man who had supervised the crucifixion looked to Jesus and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So where do we stand in relation to Jesus? Mark draws us into his narrative. We are invited to stand with Peter, convicted of our sin. We are invited to stand with Barabbas, watching Jesus take our place watching Jesus take the punishment that is our deserve. We are invited to stand with the Roman centurion, understanding that dying on the cross is the Son of God dying for me. Now, every human life lived on the earth is lived under the sentence of death. And we are all too aware of that in the world today. And that death sentence is an eternity in hell. For death is not the end. It is the beginning of an eternal life in hell under God's wrath. That is the terrible destiny for all humanity. But for God giving us his son, Because Jesus died. Heaven can be your eternity. Had He not died, heaven would be empty and hell would be everyone's destiny. But He did die. And all He asks us to do is to look to Him for our salvation. And our eternal life. For then our eternity will be in heaven. He says to us, This is my body broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for many. Take, he says drink there is the invitation and from the moment you look to jesus for your salvation he will never leave you he will never forsake you he will hold you fast through life through death to everlasting life amen